Well, when I uh, was teaching full-time for about 12 years, at the end of each semester, I would always spend one class session uh, reviewing the highlights from the course material. <clears throat> didn't matter whether it was a 15-week traditional semester or an eight-week accelerated uh, semester. I would just <clears throat> take time to sort of summarize the main teachings from that semester. A lot of times it was in the context of a review for a final exam. Don't worry, we're not going to have a final exam on our ACTS series. Although it would be kind of interesting to see how everybody fared, uh, how, much of, how much you remember from our 48-week series, 18 months we've been in Acts. But anyway, somewhere along the way, I kind of adopted the same approach to ending sermon series in, in church. And so we're going to uh, do that today. I, I want to just sort of uh, take a moment to, to, to cherry pick uh, several key points along the way in our journey of Acts and remind us of some of the timeless truths, the takeaways from those messages. I want you to kind of think of this like one of those inspirational calendars where, you know, each new day you turn the page and it comes with a new inspirational saying or maybe a scripture verse or some biblical uh, principle. And, uh, and, and that's really what we tried to do, by the way, in, this, in all of my series is week after week we take what does the Word of God say? We contextualize it in its historical setting and uh, make sure we understand it correctly. And then we say, how does that apply to our life? What's uh, the takeaway? And so it's, it's really kind of like a devotional book. It's kind of like what I do in my weekly words of life. Each chapter in this devotional book, uh, by the way, we have these out on the table. Feel free to pick one up. That's what they're there for. Uh, but each uh, chapter takes a short verse or a passage of Scripture gives an application or timeless truth that is gleaned from that passage. And it's called weekly words of life because the idea is you read a passage of Scripture each week, every day, the same passage, to just kind of really own it and embed it into uh, your hearts, and then you apply it to your life. So uh, as we wrap up our series in Acts, we're going to kind of quickly flip through the pages of that calendar, or quickly flip through the pages of a devotional book, as it were, and uh, highlight a few of the things that we talked about. Hopefully some of these will resonate uh, with you. Some will probably resonate with some of you more than others. It's not an expositional message like usual where we take one passage and then come up away with a takeaway. It's, it's a broader, casting a broader net today. But, you know, the Spirit of God always finds a way to take what we speak from His Word and apply it to our lives. You know, I was mentioning to John, our associate pastor, uh, you know, and anybody that does any speaking or preaching can appreciate this, maybe our brother that's visiting with us, you know, a lot of times you'll, you'll preach the Word of God, and, you know, as you've prepared the message and you've come up with a, a, a general principle or main point, if you will, uh, you know, you, you present that, and inevitably after the message, wherever I go at a conference or here at home, uh, people will sometimes come up and say, hey, you know, I really appreciate that message, and they'll repeat some obscure side point that really wasn't even in my notes. It's just something that came up as a side note as I chased a rabbit or something, and I'm going, well, praise God, thank you for that, but that really wasn't the point of the message, but, you know, okay. And it just reminds me that it's the Holy Spirit, right, that's really doing the teaching. And so as long as we're true to the Word of God, accurately handling the Word of God, uh, he can he can do that. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, hopefully, depending on where you are in your walk, what's going on in your life, what you're facing, some of these principles uh, will resonate more than others. I'm not going to go through all 48 messages. Obviously, we don't have time for that, but just a few uh, a few of them. So before we start, though, let me kind of provide a quick chronological summary of where we were in the book of Acts. So we spent a roughly a year and a half or so going through this. It was 48 messages. But chronologically, it all started in chapter 1 with Christ's ascension. That was May 14th, A.D. 33. And uh, then in chapter 2, we see the birthday of the church on the day of Pentecost, 10 days later on May 24th. And then, uh, you know, the next few chapters, chapters 3 through 8, cover the first uh, couple of years. Uh, a lot of focus on Peter and John and the early church in and around Jerusalem. Then a key turning point comes in Acts chapter 9 when Paul meets the Lord on the road to Damascus and he becomes a believer. That was 35 A.D. And then uh, skipping ahead to 40 A.D., Acts 10 and 11, we see the fascinating discussion of Peter and Cornelius. We're going to talk about that this morning. Uh, and then chapter 12, we see James, the, the uh, brother of John, one of the apostles, is beheaded, and that's in 44 A.D. And then we get to really the bulk 
of the book of Acts covers Paul's missionary journeys as the gospel spreads westward. And chapters 13 and 14 deal with Paul and Barnabas's missionary journey. That was 48 and 49 A.D. Then chapter 15 is a key passage in Acts because after that first missionary journey, the early church leaders gathered together in Jerusalem to address some of the issues that 17 years into the church had begun to rise to the fore. Remember, this was during the apostolic age when we didn't have the complete revelation of God. God was still speaking in and through the apostles with direct revelation. The church was growing. People were coming to faith, but it was a new work of God. It was a new dispensation, as Paul would later describe it in one of his prison epistles, the book of Ephesians. And so the early church was beginning to struggle a little bit with that connection between Jew and Gentile in one body. So the church leaders got together. It was called the Jerusalem Council. 50 A.D. was the year. It's covered in Acts chapter 15. And uh, the takeaway from that, we're, we're going to highlight that here as we go through this review in just a moment. Uh, but they basically reminded the church, you don't have to do any good works to be saved. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to keep the law. It's all about grace through faith. And then the second missionary journey is covered in Acts 15 to 18, the end of chapter 15 and into chapter 18. Covers of the years A.D. 50 to 52, that's Paul and Silas. The third missionary journey is A.D. 53 to 57, Acts 18 to 21. Paul spends the bulk of that time at Ephesus, if you remember. And then uh, Acts 21 to 24 deals with Paul's arrest and his trial before Felix and other magistrates. That's all in the year A.D. 57. That, this, the closer we get to the end here, ought to start sounding a little bit more familiar. If you're like me, some of those early chapters are like, oh, I vaguely remember that. Um, and, uh, but now as, you know, we're getting into the recent weeks as we wrapped up our series. Uh, chapters 24 to 26 deals with Paul's two-year imprisonment in Caesarea and some other various trials and happenings there. And then, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, Paul's journey to Rome. I've got a typo there on the screen. Sorry about that, but it's, it's Paul's journey to Rome, not Rom. I don't think he ever visited Rom. Um, but anyway, uh, that was about a seven-month period, and uh, we ended that in Acts chapter 27 and 28 with Paul finally arriving at Rome. So with that chronological background, we see that the book of Acts covers about a 27-year period, 33 A.D. to 60 A.D., and it, it covers the expansion of the church. So let's dive in right from the beginning in Acts chapter 1. It all started uh, when the church was born. We, we looked at the first 11 uh, verses of Christ's ascension, and we asked the question, what makes the church the church? And so Verses 4 and 5, we read, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus had promised in the upper room that the Holy Spirit would come in a unique new way. Now, the Holy Spirit's God. He's omnipresent. It's not like the Holy Spirit came into existence on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But Jesus had promised that he would come in a unique way, in a powerful way, and do a new work. And that new work would be baptizing uh, believers into the body of Christ. Paul would later expound upon this in, second, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, when he talks about how we are baptized into one body. Baptism just means identified. Uh, in fact, we, I'm not going to review it today, but we, one of the messages in this series, we talked about baptism from Acts, I think it was chapter 10, with Cornelius. Uh, but uh, Jesus had promised this new work of the Holy Spirit. So here he is on the Mount of Ascension. He says to the disciples, uh, you know, just go back to Jerusalem and wait. Something unique is about to happen. Well, of course, they then respond with that famous question about the kingdom. The disciples had been obsessed with the kingdom throughout his three-and-a-half-year ministry. Uh, he, had he had started his ministry by announcing the kingdom was at hand, um, uh, at hand means, you know, within an arm's length. That's where the phrase comes from. It's like it's close, but it's not quite here yet. Uh, but it's, it's, it's among you, right? And he and John the Baptist both announced that. And, of course, we know that prophetically and, and historically the Jews rejected Christ. They crowned him with thorns instead of a king's crown. And so that ushered in a period of delay. This was all part of God's plan. It wasn't a delay from God's perspective, from a human perspective, though it was a delay. And uh, that's the church age that we now find ourselves in, as Paul explained in Ephesians chapter uh, 3. But the disciples during his three and a half years really were 
uh, obsessed with the kingdom. Jesus had promised the kingdom would come, or the Old Testament prophets had promised it would come. Uh, all kinds of biblical data in the Old Testament about the dimensions of the temple, the boundaries of the kingdom, who would you know, sit on the throne. During his earthly ministry, he promised the 12 disciples would someday sit on 12 thrones with him. One of the disciples' moms wanted to know if his, her, kids could sit, her sons could sit on either side of him in the kingdom. Uh, Peter and Jesus had an interesting conversation about what he would get in the kingdom, Peter that is. So the kingdom you know, was talked about a lot during his earthly ministry. So the disciples never quite understood until after the cross, even though they should have because the Old Testament talked about it, that the cross comes before the crown, that suffering comes before you know, uh, victory. And so, but now, here they are 40 days after the resurrection of Christ on the Mount of Ascension. They're starting to connect the dots. They see that Jesus was not just the King of kings and Lord of lords, but the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But yet they still wanted to know about the kingdom. And this is where Jesus famously says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. In other words, just be patient. Go back to Jerusalem, like I said. The kingdom will come in its own time uh, when the Father is ready for it. Uh, remember, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the throne of God, the throne in waiting, as we read about in Psalm 110 and Psalm 2. And at some point in the future, God's going to say it's time. And he's going to send his eternal son, our Savior, back to the earth in bodily form to take the long-awaited throne in Jerusalem. Jesus goes on to tell them in this moment, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that verse right there really serves as an outline for the rest of the book of Acts and really serves as an outline for any church that's following the Great Commission and doing the Lord's work until he comes. And that is, we ought to be witnesses of the gospel here in our neighboring communities and ultimately throughout the world. So as we looked at Acts chapter 1, we, we took this as sort of the takeaway. We need to remember where it all started. Uh, remember who's in charge, Jesus. Luke's first volume, if you will, the Gospel of Luke, was all about Jesus. Luke's second volume, the, the book of Acts, is all about Jesus. And remember what lies ahead. And then we move on to chapter 2. Ten days later, on the day of Pentecost, we see, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. So we talked about catching the wind of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit moved in a mighty way, beginning uh, what we now know is the church, the body of Christ. Uh, but we said this, are you watching for the Holy Spirit's presence in your own life? Uh, you'll be amazed at what happens in your life when you catch the wind of the Holy Spirit. You know, after 2,000 years, a lot of churches have forgotten the powerful role of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The church began with a mighty move of the Spirit. And somehow we've sort of turned a deaf ear and dull hearts to the move of the Holy Spirit over the last you know, two millennia. Um, but we talked about in this, in this message from Acts chapter 2 how we should never disregard the Holy Spirit's presence. We should never discredit the Holy Spirit's power. We should never dismiss the Holy Spirit's point. He's trying to tell us something through the Word of God today. And we should never discount the Holy Spirit's purpose. And then also in chapter 2, we were able to take a look at the end of that chapter at the model church. You know, the first church in Jerusalem there uh, gave us an example descriptively of what later the epistles would prescribe as some of the things that we're supposed to be doing. But that early church focused on baptism and the Lord's Supper as two important ordinances of the Lord. They had a sense of community. They focused on the apostles' teaching and doctrine, something that many churches today have forsaken. Paul told us that would happen, right? That many churches would fall away uh, and, and be uh, listening to doctrines of demons and false teaching. I've talked a lot recently about this idea of apostasy. did a podcast Friday with uh, John Loeffler on sleeping, uh, sleepy Christians and apostasy in the last days. One of the messages I heard last week in Tulsa was about uh, apostasy. I was really blessed by the, the person who gave that message, and it just reminded me of of how far we've drifted from the early church in our focus on sound doctrine. But we talked about the importance of fellowship, koinonia, of reverence, of benevolence, of unity, of joy, praise and worship, and how ultimately the church is here to make a difference and influence the world. Now I want to skip ahead a few chapters to chapter 5, uh, Peter and John, and this idea of persecution. Early on we saw Peter and John 
being persecuted, uh, first by the Jewish, unbelieving Jewish leaders, and then ultimately by Rome as well. And it says, uh, they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. So we talked about what it looks like to power through persecution. How do you handle persecution? We said, first of all, focus on what is not seen, not what is seen. Focus on what is not seen, what not what is seen. Well, I, I've, I've kind of adopted that as a just a, a principle that I come back to again and again in my own life. You know, when we face persecution, it's easy to focus on what you see. I mean, it hurts. There's a real issue. There's a real crisis. There's a real problem that can consume our attention. But if that's what we focus on in those moments, we're missing out on what the Lord has for us. We need to keep our eyes fixed on things above. We need to set our eyes on Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. And so focus on what is not seen, not what is seen. Remember that persecution can be relentless. Remember that our first priority is always God's word. Not what man says, but what God's word says. And I, and I, I mentioned this in the early service, but I confess that, you know, one of my weaknesses, that the same mistakes that I keep committing again and again in my life, and I know some of you can relate to this, is that when a crisis pops up, my first uh, response is to try to handle it myself. You know, I'm a, I'm a guy, I want to fix things, right? So car breaks down, air conditioner goes out in the house, some problem, what do I do? Pick up the phone, call the repair guy, or pull out the credit card. I, I can fix this. I want to get it off my list. I want to solve the problem so I can move on and get back to ministry, right? Well, how often do we not give the Lord a chance to solve our problem? Instead of focusing on what's seen, focus on what is not seen. Now, of course, sometimes the Lord will, you know, it'll be clear to you, hey, you just need to, you know, he'll pave the way and he'll show you how to fix this. But let's give the Lord an opportunity to be God. Uh, praise God in the midst of persecution and never give in to Satan's intimidation. Now we skip ahead to chapter 8 and we come to the fascinating story of Simon the sorcerer. Um, so we read, Simon himself believed. So this was a guy that was dealing in magic. And yet he heard the gospel, he was saved, became a believer. Uh, he was baptized after he got saved. And, uh, and then he fell back into his old ways. And so we use this example of Philip to talk about the Christian journey, about going from sin to salvation, and then the ongoing struggle between the, the spirit and the flesh, and the fact that there's often a lack of shame when it comes to sin in the life of a believer today. But we said, though the, the journey will be hard at times as a new child of God, a believer, a, 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 a child of the King, uh, we need to remember who we are in Christ. Uh, it's We find ourselves sometimes reverting back to the old habits. Old habits die hard, we said, of our pre-conversion life. It, but it comes down to remembering who we are in Christ. As Paul would later say from his prison epistle, uh, in Ephes you know, when he wrote to the Ephesians, he says, we need to put off concerning the former conduct that old man and be renewed in the spirit of our mind and put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, when you trusted Christ, as, as Mike mentioned in, in one of, I don't remember if it was in your opening prayer or your prayer or one of the comments you made about one of the songs, our position in Christ is perfectly righteous the moment we trust in Him. Nothing can change that positional righteousness. But the problem is our practical righteousness does not always reflect who we are in Christ. Sometimes there's a disconnect between who we are and how we behave. The goal of the Christian walk is to live out that positional righteousness that can never change once for all a child of God in practical righteousness. And when our lives don't reflect that, we are living like the old man. We're living like we used to be. So we talked about the importance of recognizing uh, the new man with the new habits that the Spirit of God prompts us to live out versus the old man. And the Bible tells us if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Doesn't mean we always act like it. We always should act like it. That's why, you know, Calvinists get it so wrong. I, I hate to say it with all respect to my Calvinist friends. But they say every believer is guaranteed to do good works. I wish that were true. But if it were true that we were guaranteed to produce outward visible good works, why wouldn't we all be perfect? I mean, essentially what Calvinists say is God is so good, he's just such an awesome God that he's going to guarantee at least a little bit of righteousness. You know, you can have some sin. God's okay with some sin. But you're not going to, you know, you're, you're, you're going to have to produce some good works. No, if God's going to do it, if it's all on God, 
Believe me, he doesn't do anything half-heartedly. It's going to be perfect. And if it were totally up to God, every believer would be perfectly righteous outwardly the way we are perfectly righteous inwardly. The fact of the matter is we can quench the Spirit. We can grieve the Spirit. We can not yield to the Spirit. God doesn't force us to be righteous any more than he forced us to be saved in the first place. God doesn't force us to be saved any more than he forced Adam and Eve to sin. They had a free will, and they chose to disobey God did not heed his warning and sinned. And wherefore by one man sin entered the world, Adam, therefore death passed upon all sin, all men, for all have sinned. We've all become sinners. We're born dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 2. And so just as like it's just as we had a free will to begin with, we have a free will to be saved. Whosoever will let him come drink of the water of life freely. Come one, come all. You know, Christ the Holy Spirit is drawing us to Christ. Jesus tells us he's convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But make no mistake, God doesn't force anybody to believe the gospel. You know, uh, forced love is no love at all. God might, might compel us through the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, but he never coerces us. He never forces us. And similarly, once you've, by you know, the free choice, chosen to believe in Jesus Christ and accept that freely offered gift to whosoever will may come, then you have the choice every day to walk in the new man or walk in the old man. Which is it going to be? And, uh, but it's not about simply working harder, doing better, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps or keeping a list of do's and don'ts. It's about remembering your identity in Christ. Why in the world as a new man, a child of the king, would you want to live like that old man sold under sin? Why would, as Paul talks about in Romans 6-8, why would you want to put yourself back in prison again? Or to use the clothing analogy that he uses in Ephesians and Colossians, why after being given a brand new set of, you know, Armani suits, and I, I would use a female analogy, but honestly, I'm not that up on female clothing. You'll be glad to know. But, you know, Armani comes to mind as, as uh, you know, a very expensive fancy suit for men. Um, you know, why having been given this expensive set of clothing, would you want to go back in your closet and pour out the old tattered and torn beat up, you know, clothes that haven't been washed in months, you know? That's what it's like when we cater to the flesh instead of catering to the spirit. So that's obviously an important principle in our ministry at Not By Works Ministries and in Plum Creek Chapel. We believe in the free grace of God for salvation and the, the sanctification process being a, a process whereby we yield to the Holy Spirit and live out the new man that we are in Christ. Uh, let's skip to chapter 9. In the very next chapter, the book of Acts takes a real key turning point because here's where... Saul becomes saved. He meets the Lord on the road to Damascus and believes the gospel. And I chose verses 1 and 2 here to kind of uh, talk about because, you know, this is a, a chapter that really demonstrates, perhaps like no other, you know, descriptively, the amazing grace of our Lord. We sing about amazing grace all the time. Love that song, right? Here we see it in high-definition color because the Bible tells us, Luke tells us, that Saul was still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. This guy hated Christ. He hated Christians. And he was killing them, torturing them, and, and, and persecuting them. And yet, he was able to be saved. And so we said grace is immeasurable. And we talked about how your past can never overpower grace. And your present can never overpower grace. And guess what? Your future can never overpower grace. If you, in simple childlike faith, have placed your trust in Jesus Christ as the only one who can save you, you're instantly born again. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You've passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment, as Jesus says himself. You've become born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus. And you're a Christian. And guess what? If you're a Christian today, you'll be a Christian tomorrow. And that's true every day of your life. Never can it be said, I'm a Christian today, but I don't know if I'm going to be a Christian tomorrow. Because your future can never overpower God's grace. Amen, Amen to that. Very next chapter, chapter 10, uh, Peter has that really interesting vision of the sheet with the, all the food, the unclean food on it. Remember that? This is in the context of Peter taking the gospel to the Gentiles, to Cornelius' family specifically. And Acts deals with this in chapters 10 and 11. But uh, we'll pick out verses 15 and 16 here. The voice spoke to Peter in this dream, and he said, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Remember, God had showed him this vision of unclean food and said, Eat. And Peter, 
true to Peter's form, said, No, Lord. A lot of times in the Bible, Peter says, No, Lord. That was just his nature. May it never be, Lord. This will never happen to you, Lord. Lord, I'll never do that. I'll never deny you. No, Lord. No, Lord is one of those oxymorons. If you ever think about saying, No, Lord, don't do it. I mean, there's never an appropriate time to say, No, Lord. It's always, Yes, Lord. But Peter, like a lot of us, frequently said, No. So the Lord had to tell him this three times in this dream. And what was the point? The point was, and by the way, God had previously told Peter this and the disciples this. We read about this in Mark chapter 7, but Peter had either forgotten or never really understood it. But Jesus had said, there's nothing that enters a man from the outside which can defile him, but the things that come out of him. That's the things that defile him. Um, so food, you know, all things are lawful. Now Paul elaborates on this later on after you know, he starts writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. He talks about although all things are lawful, doesn't mean all things are beneficial. And if, if you know, for in the context there, Paul says in Romans, if not eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols, even though I'm perfectly capable of doing that, there's nothing unclean. If that's going to cause a weaker brother to stumble, then I'm willing to, to not do that. So certainly in terms of our interaction with other believers, we're going to be sensitive to where people are at. We're not going to, you know, do things that purposely cause people uh, to be offended, but there's nothing in and of itself of the food that makes it itself wrong. And so that's the context here, but it, the broader context here is, is all about law and grace. That's the issue at hand. Law and grace are two foundational concepts that really occupy an enormous amount of real estate in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Um, and, you know, what the early first century Jews had not quite understood and what Peter was still struggling with, as evidenced by his reaction to the vision, is that it's not what we do that commends us before God. It's who we are. It's our faith. And from Genesis to Revelation, every human being since Adam and Eve, including Adam and Eve, is saved the same way, by grace through faith, not by keeping the law. See, Father Abraham was saved by grace. He believed God and was declared righteous before a holy God. The law was never intended to save people. In fact, Paul would later tell us in his first epistle in Galatians chapter 3 that the law was simply put in place until Christ came as a steward. You know, it was there to help maintain some semblance of order. But it wasn't intended to save people. The law can never save people. All the law does is, is as Paul explains in Romans, is highlight the fact that we're sinners. <laughs> It puts a standard. Paul says in Romans 7, uh, you know, when, when uh, the law came, sin was emboldened, right? Sin was still sin before 1446 B.C. when God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. I mean, did nobody sin before God gave the law to Moses? No, of course they, they did, right? But the law came along and it provided a, sort of some regulations and some boundaries. It's kind of like laws in our culture today. Right? As you've heard me say many times, a stop sign serves a valuable purpose. It keeps order. It prevents accidents. But I've never seen a stop sign uproot itself from the side of the road and jump out in front of the road and stop you from running through the intersection. The law is powerless to do that. But it helps keep order. So the law was put in place, Paul tells us, for a period of time to maintain order. But that time has come and gone. And in the present church age, Paul explains, we're not under the law anymore. As a steward, as a tutor, as a nanny, that's the idea there in Galatians 3. Instead, we're under the law written on our hearts, the Spirit of God, the indwelling Spirit. In the Old Testament, they didn't have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You realize that, right? That's why, for example, in, in, in uh, David's famous penitent psalm, Psalm 51, after David uh, sinned with Bathsheba and killed Uriah, he prayed, Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit could come and go. He anointed certain kings and prophets, and he influenced people. But he didn't take up permanent residence. But today, the Bible tells us very plainly in Ephesians that the moment you believe, the Holy Spirit takes up residence, and we are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. That's the law in our hearts today. That's, that's why we sin. You know, don't sin. We don't sin because the Spirit of God convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So I don't know about you, but if your behavior is prompted by a uh, looking to the law, you've got the wrong object, and that's legalism, basically. Uh, I don't rob a bank, not because it's against the law. I don't rob a bank because the Spirit of God within me tells me it's wrong to steal. Right? I don't not murder 
because it's one of the Ten Commandments. I don't not murder. I don't murder. Get my negatives straight. What, did I say don't not murder a minute ago? Yes. Okay, for the record, because, you know, the NSA is always watching, and I've been a target. I had someone email me just this week. We get, we're get we getting more and more negative emails. One of them was profanity-laced and just called me all sorts of names, Didn't apparently didn't like what I had to say. But anyway, for the record, I'm against murder. Let's just make sure that's out there. Uh, what I'm trying to say is, what constrains me from committing murder isn't the Ten Commandments. It's the Spirit of God within me, right? We're not under the law today, right? Um, so, you know, we talked about this, and again, this is an important issue, so I'm spending a little more time on it. But if you focus too much on the law, then, you know, you're going to draw rigid lines. You're going to have demanding structures. You're going to have an unforgiving spirit. But you can go to the other extreme, too. As Paul said in Galatians, in Romans 5, if you, you know, even though where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. You can't out-sin God's grace. That doesn't mean we should just go out and start sinning. That's license. And if you focus too much on license, you're going to have no order, no structure. You're going to have no accountability. There's going to be no rules. You're going to be very anti-nomian, anti-meaning the prefix against, namos, the, pre, the, the word law, so against the law. You're going to have an antinomian lifestyle. You're going to be very licentious, emphasizing license. But the Word of God teaches us to focus on grace, not license, not legalism, but grace. And grace not only saves us, but it sustains us. And it helps us, through the power of the Spirit, live out our lives for Christ. Let's go to chapter 11. And this is a pivotal chapter where the, the term Christian first comes on the world scene. So uh, at, at, the, at the city of Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So we took the occasion to ask the question, what is a Christian? You know, it's been nearly 2,000 years since a small band of men and women and their leader, Jesus Christ, changed the world and shaped the course of human history. It shapes the very world we live in today. When you think about it, the rise and expansion of Christianity is nothing short of miraculous, given its inauspicious beginnings in a dirty stable outside Bethlehem on a cold winter night. And yet, today we use the term, uh, you know, pervasively. It started in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. So we asked the question, what is a Christian? And I suggested there are, th suggested there are three types of people who identify as Christians. You got the geographic Christians. They're unsaved. They never believe the gospel, but they think just because they live in the Western world, they're Christian, right? I'm in the West, so I'm a Christian, right? But they're not saved. They never believe the gospel. Then another category is the generic Christian. These are people who think they're Christians by default. Well, I'm not Muslim. I'm not Hindu. I'm not Buddhist. You know, I must be Christian, right? But they too have never had that personal moment when they've trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. The Bible speaks of only one type of genuine Christian, and that's those who by faith have trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone. They're saved. And so we ask the question, which one are you? In chapter 12, we come to Peter's supernatural jail break. You remember this fun, fun story? You know, he's in jail, um, and meanwhile the church is praying for him. And eventually, as we're going to see here in a second, the Lord supernaturally rescues him from jail. He shows up at the door, and uh, the girl answers the door, Rhoda, I think her name was, and, and he says, I'm here. And she goes back in to tell everybody who's praying for Peter to be released from prison, hey, Peter's here. And they go, be quiet, we're praying for Peter to be released from prison, you know. It's obvious, uh, the application there, that sometimes if we're going to ask for the Lord to do something, let's give him the chance to do it, right? So he's, uh, the book of Acts, verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 4, tells us that he's uh, being guarded by four squads of soldiers. A squad had four soldiers. They would take six-hour shifts throughout the day. On each shift, four soldiers would guard him. Two were uh, uh, chained to him, and two were guarding the door. And yet, no match for the Lord. The Lord supernaturally uh, delivered him. It was an amazing story. So he took that opportunity to talk about seeing the supernatural. And we said, what are some elements of the supernatural. And I want to take a moment to review all of these because lately, as I've been talking about the uh, spiritual realm and the battle that's raging in the unseen realm, as we get closer and closer to the return of the Lord, this has been something that's been heavy on my heart. So this is, as I reviewed these 
topics that we've covered. This one was one of the ones that really stood out. But we said, in terms of elements of the supernatural, impossible predicaments call for supernatural solutions. As I said earlier, if you can solve the problem yourself, you don't need God. But it's when we really are up against something that is completely out of our control, beyond our reach, we, we can't do anything about it, that's when God steps in, if we'll give him the chance. Peter was in an impossible situation. Sixteen soldiers in shifts, chains, 24-hour guards, multiple layers of security, but impossible predicaments call for supernatural solutions. Number two, we said sometimes the believer's only available weapon is prayer. When you're in that situation, you know, pray. Uh, you're wondering why you haven't witnessed any firsthand supernatural activity lately? How's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? Number three, supernatural activity almost always involves angels, and demonic supernatural activity is pervasive, right? Uh, so we see the unseen forces out there, both positively as angels, ministering spirits often come and are agents to help us, and God sends them our way. Hebrews tells us that. But sometimes the unseen forces of evil are pretty powerful. That's why Paul reminds us in Ephesians that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers of the darkness, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And then we said uh, supernatural activity explains the unexplainable. You know, the reason that government officials, scientists, secular humanist researchers can't explain so much today that's happening all around us because they don't have a biblical worldview. As Christians, we don't need a, a secular explanation. We don't need to see it, feel it, hear it, touch it, smell it. We know there's a God, and there's a supernatural explanation for it. Supernatural activity is often hastily dismissed or explained away. And finally, supernatural activity always serves a purpose in God's plan. So we covered seeing the supernatural. In Peter's case, it helped him avoid death as God stepped in. And it created a platform for the gospel going forward. Well, in chapter 14, as we skip ahead a couple of chapters, we see Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey. And they too, like Peter and John before them and others, Stephen, faced persecution. And uh, it talks about how a violent attempt was made by both Gentile and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, and they fled. So we talked about suffering and what it looks like to suffer and asked the question, are you prepared to suffer? Now, Jesus promised us there would be tribulation, and it's getting worse and worse. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being Deceived, Paul tells us. And then we go to chapter 15. I mentioned the Jerusalem Council held in Jerusalem by the early church leaders. And this is a quote from the letter that served as the summary or conclusion to that council that they sent out to all the churches. And I focused on one phrase that sort of caught my eye uh, that week. And that was when it says, being assembled with one accord. And the early church leaders met with one accord. The, word, the phrase one accord there means one purpose. And so we talked about what do we have in common. And 2,000 years later, we have the same things in common. The same gospel, it hasn't changed. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. The same guarantee that if you trust in Christ, you're guaranteed to have eternal life. Nothing can ever change that. It's not anything we do. It's totally what Christ did. The same grace. Grace hasn't changed. That's an attribute of God. The same God and the same goal, which is to spread the gospel. So we talked about how we're all in this together and how important that is for the body of Christ. Go to chapter 17, and we see uh, the second missionary journey, Paul and Silas, and they're in Thessalonica. And we read that they're referred to as those who have turned the world upside down. And so I asked the question, how are we doing Today We talked about how the church is supposed to be so different that the world is going to view us as those that are turning the world upside down. So we, we took a, this opportunity to talk about the biblical doctrine of separation and how we're in the world and not of it. We're supposed to be different, unique, distinct, reflecting God's glory. In short, we're supposed to be separate from the world even though we live in the world. That's always been God's plan. God's people have always been supposed to be different. You know, the children of Israel 
We're supposed to cross the Jordan, go into the land of Canaan and reflect God's glory and draw the pagan nations around them to Yahweh, witnessing to the unity and goodness and faithfulness of Almighty God, the creator of the universe. They made the same mistake the church is making today. They capitulated to the pagan false religions around them. They intermarried and before long the people of Israel were indistinguishable from pagan groups around them. And so we, we ask the question, are you turning the world upside down or is the world turning you upside down? You know, you'll never become like the people you don't hang around. That's a very important principle to remember. You'll never become like the people you don't hang around. The Bible calls on us to be friendly, to be gracious, to be kind, to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But our closest friendships, if you understand the biblical concept of friendship, needs to be believers. If your closest confidants, if your closest friends today are people who are children of wrath, children of Satan, they're not believers, I mean, let's call them what they are. They may be nice, friendly, you may have a lot in common, they may be great on the pickleball court, but are they believers? If your closest friends are not believers, you're not heeding the counsel of Scripture. Our closest friends need to be people who share the common bond of the Holy Spirit and that we, can, we have the same biblical worldview. Unbelievers, fine. Acquaintances, we might do things with them from time to time, always with a goal to reflecting the glory of God and hopefully seeing them come to faith in Christ. But you never become like the people you don't hang around. Why does the church today look so different from the, you know, so similar to the world? Because we've spent too much time hanging around the world. That's right. Mm -hmm. And then in Acts 19, it's a fascinating story going back to the supernatural again. Here we are. In Ephesus, known for its demonic and evil spirits and things. And the Bible tells us God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. So you have, I called this behind enemy lines. It was 56 AD. Paul spent two years and eight months in Ephesus. Most of the third journey was spent in Ephesus. And some really weird things happened. You had this man with an evil spirit. And so the seven sons of Sceva stepped up. We got this. We can take care of this. And I mean, that evil spirit ate their lunch. It wasn't even close. And so we used this opportunity to draw some biblical principles about things to remember before dabbling with the spiritual realm, before going behind enemy lines, I called it. First of all, spiritual warfare is not something to trifle with. It's serious. Not a game. Secondly, we said the enemy does not care who you are. The enemy is not easily impressed. Neither is his legion of demons. He doesn't care how important you are, how powerful you are, how rich you are, how big and strong you may be on this earth. You're on his playground when you're dealing with spiritual warfare. And if you're not prepared, he will eat your lunch. Apart from Jesus, the enemy will always prevail. Going behind enemy lines without Jesus to watch your back is dangerous. It's hopeless. And, you know, there were seven sons of Sceva. Actually, plus you had the unnamed Jewish exorcist. We don't know how many there were, but let's just say it was ten to one. No matter, that evil spirit killed them. I mean, destroyed them. It wasn't even close. If I recall, they fled out of the house naked, <laughs> humiliated and embarrassed, right? It was decisive because they didn't have the right warfare. Spiritual warfare has consequences. And we need to always name the name of Christ and follow Jesus' example, quote the Scripture. I talked about this recently in our Tuesday night series on dealing with demonic uh, oppression. But the takeaway that week was stick with Jesus and the enemy will flee. Remember, Jesus said, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. In Acts chapter 20, so this was all, what we just talked about took place in Ephesus. In Acts chapter 20, Paul's in Miletus. And he summons these elders from Ephesus to come see him. He couldn't go back there because there was a riot. He would be probably killed. You come see me. I've got to tell you something. And from his speech to the elders, we picked out this one a passage to focus on where he talks about repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is one of the most misunderstood terms in the Bible. So we talked about the truth about repentance. Repentance simply means a change of mind. You know, the, the, the noun and verb forms combined are used only 58 times in the New Testament. Uh, metanoeo is the verb. Meta, to think. Noeo, to know, means to, or to think. 
to think again. Uh, metanoia is the noun, means thinking again. Uh, so whenever we see repentance, we should ask the question, change your mind about what? Today in English, the word repent has become synonymous with change your behavior. And so people say, if you want to go to heaven, you've got to change your behavior. You've got to forsake all your sins. You've got to turn your life around. You've got to make a U-turn. You've got to bring something to the table. You've got to do something to impress a holy God. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible never says you've got to stop sinning to be saved. If we could get saved by stopping sin, Jesus didn't have to go to the cross, right? If we could get saved simply because we were motivated by some self-help guru like Dr. Phil or Oprah, or we watched a good documentary, and we said, oh, I think I'm going to change my life. And so we just start cleaning our life up. And we slowly get rid of all the bad habits. Does that mean we're going to heaven? You can repent of your sin all day. It's not going to get you into heaven. Repentance, as it relates to salvation, has to do with a change of mind about Christ. So there is repentance, as Paul talks about, but it doesn't have anything to do with stopping your behavior. You can only do that after you get saved. You don't have to get cleaned up to take a bath. That makes no sense at all, right? And so repentance as it relates to salvation sounds something like this. I used to think I could save myself by my good works, but I've changed my mind. I've repented. I now realize that only Jesus can save me, and I'm trusting him to give me the free gift of eternal life. Amen. But what about believers? Is there a role for repentance in the life of believers after we're saved? Absolutely. Same thing, though, change of mind. I recognize that my behavior does not conform to the image of Christ within me like we talked about earlier. I've changed my mind about my behavior, and now I'm going to choose to walk in righteous behavior that pleases God and reflects who I am in Christ. So unbelievers need to repent, change their mind about Christ in order to be saved, recognizing that only He can save them. Believers, if you know the Lord, that's you and I, we need to repent in the sense of changing our thought processes and realizing that when I cater to the old man, I'm not living like the new man that I am. Chapter 21 gives us a great description of Paul's steadfast faith. As you recall, he was on his way to Jerusalem, and uh, his Christian friends told him, you know, don't go there because you're, they're going to kill you. And listen to what he said, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And so he talked about what does it mean to follow Christ? What is a disciple? The word disciple in Scripture is the word mathetes. It's used very commonly 269 times in the New Testament, but always in the Gospels and Acts, by the way, never in the epistles. Um, a disciple just means a follower, right? A follower. It means uh, to be in close proximity to someone, to be a follower of someone. In the Bible, you could be a disciple of Christ, a disciple of John the Baptist, a disciple of the Pharisees, a disciple of Paul, a disciple of Apollos, a disciple of Peter. You know, today, people could be disciples of different people. But a disciple just means followers. And just as there are three types of Christians, the Bible speaks of three types of disciples. Now, J. Dwight Pentecost first taught me this years ago. He's with the Lord now. But I've picked up on this and been using it for 30 years. In the Bible, you see curious disciples. Those were people who followed Christ, but they were not saved. They never believed the gospel. Judas was in that camp. Then you had the convinced disciples. Those were uh, also uh, uh, people, they, they, in this case, they were saved, they were following Christ, but they just weren't committed. Peter would be in that category when he denied Christ. You can scarcely call someone who denies Christ three times a follower of Christ, right? So he was a believer, but he wasn't a follower of Christ. The goal for all of us is to be committed, to be saved and following Christ. And that's what Paul was. He was a believer. He had trusted Christ, but he was also committed. And I hope that you put yourself in that category as well. And then uh, we skip ahead to chapter 23, and uh, I love this phrase, uh, you know, the, the Lord stood by Paul in prison. You know, he, everywhere he turned, it seems like he would just be getting through a next season of suffering, and something would happen, and he would find himself suffering again. And the Lord appeared to Paul and said, be of good cheer, Paul. You know, when no one else will stand with you, when, when you're all alone, when the odds are stacked against you, the Lord is there. And we need to lean on him. So we talked about how sometimes the odds are stacked against you. And with the Lord on your side, the odds are actually always in your favor. It does not matter. Chapter 26, uh, Paul is giving his uh, extended defense before King Agrippa. And at the end of it, Festus interjects and says, wait a minute, Paul, you are beside yourself. You're nuts. Uh, he uses that word mad there at the end of that uh, verse uh, it's the noun mania it's the only time it's ever used in the new testament it means madness delirium insanity 
But he also uses the verb, which is used a few times in Scripture, you are beside yourself. That's the word minimai. means you're, you're out of your mind. So we talked about what it means from the world's perspective to be a Christian. The world thinks we're out of our mind. But the foolishness of God is no foolishness at all. Foolishness of God confounds the wisdom of man. And so we asked, are you a fool for Christ? And then uh, finally, I mean, you're going to be a fool for someone. Rather, why not be a fool for Christ, not for the world? And then last week we looked at the final two verses in the book of Acts, as you see on the screen here, how Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. So we said the mission continues. You know, the book of Acts ends where it began, with a focus on Israel, persecution, the acceptance and rejection of the gospel, and ultimately the return of Christ. And until he returns, we are to remember the mission. So hopefully some of these little snippets of encouragement from the Word of God that we've talked about over the last year and a half really are meaningful to you today in a special way, a unique way. Um, you know, we're 2,000 years into the church age. We don't know how much longer it's going to be. I think it can't be much longer. I really do. I think we're headed into uh, just uh, any day now, the Lord returning. But if the Lord tarries, and as long as He tarries, we have a job to do. That's right. And uh, that is to proclaim the gospel, to make a difference in this world, as Paul says, to shine like stars in this perverse generation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for just this uh, incredible survey that we see through the inspiration of your spirit of our brothers and sisters in Christ in the early days of the church. Lord, we confess that we've lost sight of our purpose uh, after all these years. But Lord, we pray that uh, you would convict us and that your guidance and rebukes would be gentle. And Lord, reinvigorate us both individually and as a church body to really stand in the gap and make a difference today. There is an urgency to the gospel. And we pray if there's anyone listening even now to the sound of my voice that doesn't know you, that today in simple childlike faith, uh, he or she would place his or her faith in your Son and our Savior as the only one who can forgive sin and give eternal life. And we pray all this in his precious name. Amen.